Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 64, recorded on July 29th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And let's start things off with a bit of strife over at the world's oldest surviving Linux distribution, Slackware. Yeah, we just talked about this last week, being 25 years old. And now it turns out that the lead dev has got some pretty serious financial problems. In a forum post on linuxquestions.org, Patrick writes that the store, the Slackware merch store, has been ripping me off horribly, and I'm very nearly broke. I have no evidence that they've ever done anything with donations besides their own pockets. I have not been paid money by them in two years. The last time we got paid was around the Slackware 14.2 release, which he believes he did not get a fair share of that. And what I read here is somebody who's frustrated. Patrick has been really dedicated to his work, and perhaps he hasn't been as focused on the business side of things, and that's kind of come around to bite him now. This is a very common story, isn't it, in open source? It's shock horror. People who are good at creating software and distros and cool projects aren't necessarily good when it comes to the financial stuff. Yeah, we can't all be Taylor Swift. I'll be completely honest. I am not a good businessman. I can I can make some podcasts. I can focus on some content. But I could be making way more money if I was a good businessman. And I don't mean to say that braggadociously. I'm saying that as I recognize my own failures and opportunities that I've missed out on simply because this is not a strong area for me. And if I were to project a little bit here, I'd say Patrick probably wanted to focus on Slackware and make Slackware the best it can be, which I'll say I've been gave it a go just a couple of months ago, Slackware's rocking still. Like, it's still really great. I'd say it's the best it's ever been. And he is a huge part of that. And think about what he's done for Linux in general as a whole. Yeah, there's no doubt. And having looked at it last week, I can see that it's still adhering to those fundamental principles that Patrick set out in the first place. And it is still a solid distro. But clearly... The financial side of things is not his forte. And so it makes you wonder, would it be better for the likes of Slackware and these other projects that have had financial problems? Would it be better for them to be under an umbrella organization like Conservancy or, or something similar, or you know, maybe even Mozilla or whoever? I was thinking the same thing. Like maybe that's the long-term solution. The short-term solution has been Patrick set up a PayPal account. We'll have a link in the show notes at linuxactionnews.com slash 64. And that's probably the immediate solution is, you know, help him fix the hole in his house and those kinds of issues. And then perhaps once he has some breathing room, he looks at doing something like just that. Because if you think about the importance of Slackware, it's a monument in a way to Linux's history. It is a living monument that is still evolving and growing, and it deserves being preserved and it should be done in whatever way Patrick is comfortable with. I think that's a key thing here. I don't want like some large organization like the Linux Foundation, which I've seen suggested by many online, swoop in and take ownership. Uh, I wouldn't mind them writing him a paycheck. Or, you know, I wouldn't mind the or, or another organization coming together to help him manage the bills and the business end of things, take care of expenses. But whatever that long-term solution is, it seems the short-term solution is to help Patrick out if he can, and then make room for Patrick to do what he thinks is best with Slackware, because he's been doing a great job so far. Yeah, he's been doing it for 25 years, so he's obviously doing something, right? And he mentioned possibly moving to Patreon, which I think probably makes more sense as it's more reliable and you can kind of see how much you're likely to get every month. Um, but for now, we've got this PayPal link, so do help him out if you can afford it. 
Well, I watched the dust up over this in real time on Twitter this week. There was a bit of outrage when it appeared that Google had rigged YouTube to load faster on Chrome than, say, on Firefox or Edge. Yeah, a lot of people saying that this is Google trying to force people onto Chrome and deliberately making the experience worse on other browsers. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it, really? No, in fact, a good resource to go to in this case might be Mozilla's technical program manager, Chris Peterson, who claims that what you're really seeing here is the new Polymer redesign that YouTube did that relies on a deprecated Shadow DOM version 0 API, which is only available in Chrome. Now, it results in a five times slower loading of the initial YouTube page. Subsequent page navigation is not impacted. Well, I must say that I struggled to reproduce this. I read about it and thought, I haven't really noticed that before. Let me check with Chrome and Firefox on the same machine. And I just couldn't reproduce it. This idea of it taking five seconds to load, uh, it just did not happen for me, I must say. Well, there's so many factors here. Not only do you have the connection and all the things in between you and YouTube servers, but then you also have the YouTube server load at the time and the load on your workstation at the time. It's it's almost impossible to notice unless you use tools to specifically measure performance that account for some of these things, which is exactly what Mozilla's technical program manager did. And so the numbers do, do bear out. Interestingly, Peterson also says that Polymer's latest version which is this design methodology and technology, now supports both Shadow DOM 0 and version 1 APIs, but Google is still using the current version of Polymer, but using a deprecated API. That doesn't really make a lot of sense, because if they just use the newer API that the current version of Polymer they're using supports, then it would work fine on Edge, Firefox, Safari, etc. So do you think that there is some truth to this then, and uh, Google really do want to force people onto Chrome? That'd be some good conspiracy bacon. It feels more like a cost analysis on Google's part. We've done the work, and we have a certain percentage of users. Let's, for fun, say it's 20%. 20% of our users are on Firefox, and they will experience about a second more load time than the Chrome users. And then we'll eventually fix that problem once we push out the next version or something like that. It, it just feels like a cost analysis where uh, it's it's almost unnoticeable who's really going to be running these benchmarks in the next couple of weeks. It's no big deal. And then everybody notices because YouTube's a huge site and so now it's a controversy. But the silver lining of the whole thing is I discovered, and I'll include a link in the show notes, an extension called YouTube Classic. This is what YouTube has needed to be Four years. And I've been getting tweets from folks that heard me talk about it on Linux Unplugged last week who say they just love it. You install it in Firefox, and it just makes YouTube so much better. No more dynamic comments and dynamic stuff loading. Everything just snaps, like a nearly like a static HTML site. I have heard some reports that when you uninstall the extension, the effects still remain. I have not verified that because I will never in my life be uninstalling this extension, but just Buyer beware. I have heard that. But this really is something to consider if you're on Firefox. Just bypass all the shenanigans Google's doing and get a great static-like experience on YouTube. Oh, you've really sold that to me because I was going to install it to see if I could notice the difference. But then I couldn't see any difference between Firefox and Chrome. So I didn't see any point. But now that seems very attractive to me. It's just great because the sidebar loads instantly. The comments load instantly. Everything just pops right in. You don't have to, like, search around to get to your subscriptions. They include a link to YouTube TV if you're a YouTube TV subscriber, so you don't have to go hunt around for that anymore. Everything's just right there, like it should be. A simple, clean design. 
Well, don't get too excited, Joe, because where Firefox giveth, it also taketh. Mozilla has announced it plans to remove some features from future versions of Firefox. Yeah, live bookmarks and the RSS reader, which I'm afraid to say, uh, neither of which I've ever used before, so I'm not going to miss them, but I know a lot of people will. It's a pretty neat feature. You can have a folder in your bookmarks menu bar that the individual quote-unquote bookmarks are generated by an RSS feed. So like the news of a website, say you subscribe to linuxactionnews.com slash RSS, each episode would be represented as a bookmark in that folder. So you click right to it. It's, it's, it's really neat. And I didn't use it a ton myself. And they right here, after careful consideration of various options, which also included doing nothing or investing heavily in updating the code, we have decided to go ahead and remove the built-in feed support from Firefox. So along with the live bookmarks, they're also removing the built-in RSS feed reader. That I'm a little more partial to. I, again, don't use it a ton, but I, I have absolutely used it to double-check RSS feeds in the past before I toss them into a, like a central reader or something. So I'm really going to miss that feature because Chrome doesn't have it either. Yeah, but surely this is the kind of functionality that can be brought back into Firefox via extensions if you need it. And so that makes more sense to me. If a tiny minority of users are using these features, then it makes sense to take them out and let those people bring them back in via extensions. Yep, exactly. I completely agree. And it makes sense to me that this would be, as they write, an outsized maintenance and security impact relative to the usage because you're pulling in live RSS feeds into these folders or into the browser and you have to constantly account for malicious things that could be in the feed or malicious embedded images and tracking. There's a lot of variables and I could definitely see it requiring a decent amount of attention and it's such a unique and sort of edge case feature that I also find it pretty believable that not very many users use it. So this is one of those calculated decisions that Mozilla has to make from time to time that should result in Firefox being better and more secure. And of course, this has absolutely nothing to do with Pocket. linuxacademy.com slash unplug. That's where you go to get a free seven-day trial and you sign up and support the show. Linux Academy is an advanced training platform to teach you everything that runs Linux and that Linux runs on. They've just rolled out a ton of new Red Hat Enterprise content as well as AWS and Google Cloud content. They've also just launched a weekly Google Cloud show on their YouTube channel. And their CEO and founder, Anthony James, just posted a video today, a lightning guide on getting Docker going in five minutes. And that's just the stuff they're giving away for free. And when you become a subscriber, you'll see that they've been expanding their content library like crazy this year. They've expanded on Azure, AWS, the Google Cloud platform, and of course, Linux and all the essentials itself. In fact, that's an area that just got a large amount of refreshing. That's another thing that they're super committed to, is keeping all of their content as up-to-date and as fresh as possible. That's part of what your subscription goes to. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there, sign up, get a free seven-day trial, and support the show. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Okay, let's talk about Germany and a local authority there moving away from Linux and back to Windows. Not Munich this time, it's a new one. It is Lower Saxony, and it is yet more bad news for FOSS in Europe. I'm a bit surprised after the recent reporting back in January that the cost of Munich switching back to Windows is already over $100 million. <laughs> so it's not necessarily going well. 
Uh, but yeah, the tax office has argued that this decision is driven simply by compatibility with field workers and teleworkers who overwhelmingly are using Windows uh, while their OpenSUSE variants that they have on their office workstations are of an older generation. In fact, the workstations themselves are being replaced. They're aging out, which is sort of opening the door for a great deal on Windows 10 <laughs> and an opportunity to switch away. The move is still in its early stages, with Lower Saxony governments currently defining the framework conditions of the migration, but it's going to be followed by a pre-selection of possible solutions, and then they'll begin to move. I don't know what's wrong with me, but in a way it almost feels necessary. Uh, like, like the move back to Windows isn't necessarily a loss anymore for GNU slash Linux, like it might have been, say, 10 years ago when they started getting this underway. And, you know, I do recall on the Linux Action Show clearly talking about these massive 13,000 user migrations and what a great victory this was for Linux. And now, of course, here I am 10 years later saying, ah, this is no big deal. It's totally fine. But I feel like the environment has changed so much. Back then, we were so focused on making sure that the desktop was successful and that the TiVoization of Linux didn't happen. Well, the TiVoization of Linux is what took Linux to the next level, and it's now in everyone's pocket, and Linux took over the server space. And so these minor losses or wins on the desktop just don't really feel as substantial anymore, and it feels like the long-term momentum of the Linux desktop's still going in a great direction. The trend is good for us. And if Microsoft managed to convince a few bureaucrats that they should move back to Windows when they buy new PCs, so be it. Because chances are, those PCs are going to be connecting to servers running Linux. Well, that is true. And it begs the question, is this the end of the myth that it's cheaper to use Linux instead of Windows in these enterprise installations? Yeah, maybe. I think you just touched on what it really is about this that I'm okay with. And that is, I kind of feel like this is cleaning house of people that were sold on a dream. And that dream was switch to Linux and your total cost of IT will go way, way down because you won't be buying licenses every 10 years. It just doesn't really work like that. The reality is that the business either go with a subscription plan and they, they spread that cost out, or they just budget for it every three to 10 years to refresh machines and software. And it's just part of the cost of doing business. And they are okay with that. That's the reality of that situation. And then once you build IT processes and tools around managing Windows, you just need to have people that know what they're doing and it's essentially the same cost as running free software. That's the reality of it. Once you've initially purchased those licenses and have those systems deployed, if you have the right people in place managing it and the right software to manage it, it's one or the other. And so selling it solely on saving money or saving you from XYZ is a bit of a myth, as you put it. And the reality is there's other advantages to using the Linux stack that I think now sell it. And that creates that momentum I was talking about. Like, it's great to be on that stack if you're deploying applications in the cloud. Why not develop and use the very operating system you're deploying your critical software on? That's, that's an obvious value right there that the Linux desktop brings to a huge market. And there's many other examples of that. And so those legitimate work cases sell themselves now. But this myth that you're going to save $10,000 to $100,000 a year because you just switched to Linux, I kind of think that is dying. And it's perfectly fine with me because we have plenty of other good things going for us. Well, you can save however many Bitcoins it works out to be when you don't get the ransomware that you uh, otherwise would with Windows. Yeah, that's true. And I think you could make a legitimate argument that public funds 
shouldn't be spent on big commercial license contracts, that they should go towards free software that continues to improve that software. I think that's a great argument you could make. But for general businesses and people that just look at this from a number standpoint, yeah, we're just not winning that fight on that level anymore. But I think the security aspect is where we should be pushing this. That's the primary reason why I run Linux on the desktop. You know, I do enjoy all the freedoms and the open source and all the rest of it, but I wouldn't feel comfortable using a Windows machine or even a Mac for that matter to log into my bank and stuff. I trust Linux where I don't trust Windows. And I think that it's far easier to convince enterprises and individuals when you go for a real pragmatic reason like that, rather than this ideological reason of, you know, as you say, spending public money to improve the software and everything, that's kind of a bit wishy-washy. Whereas saying to people, this is going to be more secure, I think that's a far easier sell. And there's tons of versions of that. This is going to be more reliable. This is something that you can track publicly and plan for major changes and not get surprised by a commercial vendor's sudden change in direction. This is something that is sustainable that the vendor won't lose interest in. Like there's all kinds of advantages for workstations and servers that to have nothing to do with performance or even security. So I, I think losing a couple of arguments here and there about total cost of ownership on a desktop in an environment where you have to potentially inter interact with the public and you have to interact with home employees who are on their home Windows boxes, that's just, you're never going to win that argument. And we maybe shouldn't have tried. Well, one argument for moving over to Linux they definitely shouldn't be using, and that is being able to revitalize old hardware, especially 32-bit hardware, because there is yet another reason to not use 32-bit Linux anymore. Ooh, that sounds, that sounds grim. And it is kind of true, although there is, again, a bit of a silver lining here. So this is really about protecting 32-bit processors against those side-channel attacks that we've been talking about since January. And the technology that's now coming from the x86-64 side to the 32-bit side is kernel-based page table isolation, something we've talked a lot about in TechSnap that mitigates the meltdown CPU vulnerability. Now, KPTI has been in the Linux kernel since about January, and it's been in development much longer than that. But 32-bit support has been on the back burner really since the whole meltdown thing came into public light and they had to accelerate that project. But now, with the upcoming 4.19 kernel, KPTI is landing in the Linux 32-bit version of the kernel, and Michael Lyrable over at Foronix has some early benchmarks, and they're devastating. Yeah, it's a real performance hit on a lot of applications. But you did say there's a silver lining. It can be disabled at boot time, and it's not necessary to use it. But if you want to be 100% secure, then it kind of is. And to me, this just feels like the death of 32-bit, really. It's time, isn't it? We've talked about various distros dropping 32-bit. Now it just feels like it's time to put it to bed. Yeah, my only thought here is there still is room for improvement. When KPTI first landed on the 64 side of the kernel, it took, you know, months of updating additional patches and releases to really get the performance where they wanted it. That may still happen, maybe at a slower pace for 32-bit. But the other thing that I, I can't really help but think is, you know, if you're living on a 32-bit machine, if you maybe have one in the closet doing a web server, something like that, are you super worked up about the performance at this point? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's so like shaving off another 10%, maybe 15%. 
are you really all that concerned? And just like on 64-bit, uh, it really strikes you when it's multiple I.O. subsystems that get stressed at once. So if you start stressing your CPU and your network card and you need to hit your disk a little bit, your workloads just drop off a cliff. That's, that's really the same thing that started happening with 64-bit. They began working on multi-level areas of improvement in the kernel to fix that. There's still people working on that for the 64-bit kernel right now as we speak. So some of that may find its way down to 32-bit, or it may just simply not have enough interest. Yeah, but that extra 10 or 15% makes a massive difference when you've got such limited resources in the first place. And so it could turn a potentially usable 32-bit machine into something that is just a nightmare to use. Yeah, I agree. If you're going to stick with 32-bit and you're not that concerned about meltdown, you may want to look into the no PTI option, which is a boot flag, which will disable that stuff at boot time. Yeah, and of course, a distro that I would run on old hardware like that, my go-to has always been Lubuntu, but maybe not for long. Times, they are changing, Joe. This is over on the Lubuntu blog. Now, when you think of Lubuntu, you might think of LXDE, but it's actually based on LXQt, which is a rebirth on newer Qt technologies. And they write about shifting their focus from providing a distribution for old hardware to a functional yet modular distribution focused on getting out of the way and letting users use their computer. Uh, And they talk a little bit about setting what they see as their difference here, because you may draw a comparison between Kubuntu and Lubuntu. Both are now Qt-based desktops on top of an Ubuntu 18.04 stack. So they took an 18.04.1 install with 2 gigabytes of RAM and one CPU core in QMU, And they looked at an idle system with LibreOffice open and Firefox open just at the lubuntu.me site. On Kubuntu, the system is using one gig of RAM and around 6% idle CPU. With the same setup and the same programs on a Lubuntu 32-bit install, they're using 790 megabytes of RAM and it's 7% of CPU. So a couple hundred megabytes of RAM savings, which some of that may be attributed to being on 32-bit, by the way, and 7%, 1% more CPU usage, which is the standout difference between Kubuntu and Lubuntu. Which is not a huge difference, really, especially when you take into account that 32-bit aspect with the RAM. It goes to show how lean the Plasma desktop is these days. Yeah, and that would, I would assume, be a stock Kubuntu install, uh, which if you were trying to make it run on a system, you'd probably rip out the file indexer. You'd probably turn the compositor off. You know, there's, there's areas of modularity where you can pull things out and make it use even less RAM and less disk space and less CPU. I've had it working on you know, a now 11-year-old system that uh, it's, it's remarkable how well it performs. Uh, but I think there is more to LXQ than we have here in this blog post. What you really have is a simple, minimal workspace that really is just modern technologies that get out of your way. There's one thing for Plasma that you could argue is there's a lot going on in some areas where uh, this is a more minimal approach. Yeah, there are clearly differences between the two desktops. And I don't think they will ever get away from this idea of it being for older hardware. But what is older hardware keeps changing, doesn't it? Of course, as we progress through time, something from 10 years ago is suddenly not as crusty as something from 10 years ago, five years ago, if you know what I mean. I do. And they're recognizing that fact. And they're trying to update their, I guess you could call it vision statement, for the reality that systems even from 10 years ago are 64-bit. 
Uh, the only issue I have with that is I think that reduces some of their competitive advantage. In a way, their competitive advantage would be that you could still get pretty good performance out of an older system as they begin to turn away some of those. I'm not sure, but to me, it seems to leave a question of, okay, what is your standout difference from main plasma, and how can you better refine that? I like this blog post they've taken here, and I like to think of it as a version one. Uh, In version two or three, I would like to see things that really actually make it stand out. So when they say their main focus is shifting from providing a distribution for old hardware to a functional yet modern distribution, focused on getting out of the way and letting users use their computer. I love that idea. I love that idea so much, I've also heard it, and I'm sure they've heard this criticism a thousand times now, from about 30 other distributions out there. It's it's almost like a copy and paste job. And it's a good intent, and it's a good starting point, and it's, an, it's a statement I completely agree with. What I would like to see is some refinement in there on what they're doing that the 29 other guys that also wrote that statement aren't already doing. I think you could make that same exact case for Linux Mint. I think you could make that same exact argument for Antegros. I think you could make that same exact case for Ubuntu Mate. I think you could make that same case for Ubuntu, Fedora, so on and so forth. Focused on getting out of the way and letting users do their work is practically the mantra for every desktop environment in existence, even the ones that don't get out of your way. So that could use some refinement and something that really makes it clear what makes Ubuntu stand out. And I think they'll probably get there. And if you consider this as a starting point, this is a great intent and shows a lot of potential. Well, what could make them stand out is the fact that they're using the LXQ desktop because Fedora might be dropping that soon if they don't get enough testing of that. So we might end up with Lubuntu being the only big distro, as it were, that is based on LXQ. You know, you've got the Ubuntu base, which a lot of people like, and the LXQ desktop. So that might be a USP that's big enough for them. Yeah, I think that's pretty on point. And this is also still early days for LXQ. There's still much more to come. And that desktop may end up being a standout star that draws people in. Well, it is already pretty solid. And it's early days, as you say. And it seems like a prime candidate to me for your OBS machine. Maybe it'll finally stop crashing. Yeah, a lean, mean broadcasting workstation. I could see that. Um, And like on a laptop, on remote location, where I really want to give all of my horsepower to my multi-track recorder, again, LXQ can make a lot of sense there. So we'll keep an eye on these developments and everything in the Linux and open source world. And you can get every single episode by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all of the ways to get new episodes. Yeah, and you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And you can support the whole network and our shenanigans over at patreon.com slash Signal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.